Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Exciting day on Breaking Banks. We have a new regular host, Amber Buecher. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's because she works with J.P. and I at Alloy Labs as head of Insights. Her work is phenomenal, and JP asks herself, why are we not sharing her with the world? Well, now we are. Take it from me, took a lesson from the four and two-year-old. We're going to get better about sharing. Her work is completely loved by our members. It's been great working with her over the last 18 months, and I think you're going to love the insights she brings. Amber, tell us about your first interview. Thanks so much, Jason. It's exciting to be helping out with the show. I'm excited to get to know the audience. Uh, My first segment was really exciting. I got to talk to someone who's actually my former editor when I was writing for Bank Director Magazine. His name is John Maxfield. Today, he's a senior banking specialist at The Motley Fool and executive director of the Wilmer's Integrity Prize. And in this segment, we talked about what John has termed the fourth era of American banking, which he argues we are in today, what the personal lives of the best leaders have to teach us, and what the analysts get wrong about assessing bank performance. Fantastic. Well, in the first half, I actually will be talking with Joe Walu about something else that the market tends to get wrong. So Joe's the founder and CEO of Total Expert, and we talk about picking the right partner and how that's the absolute key to success. Actually, Joe points out that that's a a myth that the market gets wrong. Understanding the problem you're trying to solve, and most importantly, investing the energy post-implementation is what differentiates a partner from a vendor. And now here's Joe. So, Joe, I want to tell you a funny story and tell me if you've heard something similar. So once upon a time, I fly out to the West Coast, and I was coming from New York, and so it was a particularly painful trip. And as I'm getting the sleep out of my eyes, you know, from having this long flight. And the bank board has me with said, we tried innovation and it, and it didn't work. And I'm like, why did you just make me fly across the country? And so, I mean, I'm there and the coffee is starting to kick in. So say, well, what did you try? And they said, we implemented CRM. Now I'm thinking to myself, what'd they do? Go with some crazy startup and, you know, like the technical failures, you know, what happened? I'm like, well, what, what startup did you go with? And well, it was, you know, the big player in the space, right? I'm like, what do you mean it didn't work? And they said, we're not getting any ROI from it. <laughs> Sound familiar? Have you heard yeah. a similar story to this? All the time, man, all the time. Well, <laughs> how does Total Expert solve that? Because I know that, so part of how this has come about, uh, Total Expert is a partner with several of Alloy Labs banks, and they love you guys, right? And thank you. We we hear about it all the time from these member banks about how much value they get out of Total Expert. So what do you know that the other technology providers out there don't? Yeah. So, well, I think... uh, I love the story, and it is a story. I don't love that that happens a lot. Unfortunately, it's very it's very common. So when when we started the company, our our thesis was really based around we're going to focus on this industry, and we're going to focus on really long term partnerships, right? And we we saw the same thing uh, back before we ever started Total Expert years ago. Uh, saw from the sidelines what what would happen typically is you would pick a big software vendor, and a software vendor that was horizontal in nature, right? They do a lot of different things. And a lot of times the problems uh, are with the fact that you're you're getting handed off to an implementation company, a services systems integrator, an SI, who doesn't base the entire success of their software company on whether or not you as a bank are getting value and winning, right? So when, when we started the company, our, our number one core value was around our customers getting uh, having success and winning from the technology partnership they had with Total Expert. 
And so I always tell our, both our team and, and the customers, look, day one of the partnership is the day that you sign the contract, meaning all of the communication, all of the iterative things that you have to do to, to make technology and innovation successful kind of start then. And that's quite an opposite approach for a lot of the bigger technology firms where the destination for them is ultimately signing that contract then passing it over to an implementations partner. And then their team's kind of off to the races onto the next thing. Yeah. Well, so it's it, it sounds like they're confusing the, the start line with the finish line. Yeah, you know, I think so. Right. And we hear this all the time that banks will come to us and say, Hey, you know, who should we be using for small business? lending, right? Mm -hmm. We know we need a digital platform. COVID taught us that. Who should we use? And, you know, I'll often ask, well, what problem are you trying to solve? And they look right. at me like I have three heads that they're like, I told you, <laughs> small business lending. Well, right. It's not a problem, you know, any customer anywhere has ever said is, you know, small business lending. I'm curious who, who, your thoughts on that. So, so you'll appreciate this story. Uh, just came from our, our customer conference, actually, in Arizona, and, and we had uh, a bank come who was a prospect, and and they, we were talking about, I mean, we, we do really, if you look at kind of the customer journey, um, we focus on, you know, how, how do we look at the entire customer journey and, and optimize it? And of course, CRM is a big piece of that in, in a lot of ways. But he was like, look, we, you know, we definitely know we need to do CRM. But here's, he's like, here's my concern, you know, adoption. And um, I'm like, okay, um, what does adoption uh, mean to you, right? And, and then more importantly, uh, what are the outcomes that you want, right? Mm -hmm. And it was in that conversation that it was sort of the common thread that I see is that organizations um, particularly have just kind of been trained that, well, I need technology for the sake of just buying technology without starting with what is the outcome that I want to get from that and then work backwards from there. And yeah. And so we started having this this conversation to where we were talking about, look, well, let's start with two things. Um, let's start with the amount of customers or prospects, say, that maybe fill out an application that don't actually fund and become a customer. Maybe they've come to one of your events. So let's start with the bucket of prospects that kind of fall through the cracks on the front end, okay? Mm. And then let's start on the back end and focus on how many customers uh, do you have uh, that are bank customers that you would like to be able to offer the additional product lines to, right? Well, a lot of those bank customers. Okay. How efficient are you at navigating that workflow, right? That orchestration of kind of communication and engagement that needs to happen. And so we really honed in on those two things. And so the conversation became about uh, business outcomes in improving my cross-sell wallet share of that existing base of customers and improving my pull-through uh, of, of prospects. This particular organization was big into doing uh, kind of community events and education type mm -hmm. content. And so the conversation then evolved to, we were talking about those two outcomes of, of really improving the customer journey in, in kind of pre-customer and then post-customer, you know, that customer lifetime value. And I found that conversation to be much more focused on uh, what winning looks like versus this broader esoteric conversation around, I need CRM because that's what everybody does, right? Yeah. Well, in JP's fond of saying, you know, when you go to some of these tech conferences, it's like going to the grocery store hungry, right? You wander around and you're yeah. like, oh, everyone needs some of those. Uh, some for, of that. Some, some of, that. of this, some of that. <laughs> and you do, and yeah. then you get it and you're like, well, what do I do with it? And I'd say on the flip side, and what it was interesting to me that came out of this idea of, you know, that what's measured is what actually matters. And yeah. too often, you know, we see banks that because they want certainty around, what they're looking for. They're not looking at improvements and enhancements that are growing the top. Too often that ROI is on what costs can I take out of this what system, right? Because it's more can tangible. I drive? 
Yeah. 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 That's that's true. And I think the you know we we look at innovation as you know as as something that it just doesn't ever stop. And and if I think about it, depending on uh, the level of organization, depending on the size and sophistication of the organization, and and quite frankly, what resources they have internally uh, to do change management, we always say. Uh, progress is the most important thing, right? Mm. And wherever you're at today, um, when you start a project, uh, understand what sort of the initial uh, chunks of value that you should be receiving so you have some benchmarks, right? And, and I'll give you some examples. For us, it's, you know, we want to, we want to improve customer retention. We want to improve cross-sell. Um, we have one customer that, uh, they had a lot of their credit card business that was going, um, basically people stopped using the cards, right? So okay. one of their initial benchmarks they wanted to do was be able to engage as people stopped using those cards, be able to drive engagement there, right? So we had very clearly defined things of what winning looked like for them. And we chunked it out uh, as part of kind of the process. So then when you go down this path, um, option A is like an 18-month sort of death march of an implementation, right? Which sometimes happens and you know for a variety of reasons, but where there's not a lot of value in progress versus getting really clear on let's find some milestones on measurable things that we can improve and then let's then go build on that progress. And that's that's really been our approach. Um, we found to, to be much, much more successful that way. Now, you brought up change management, and I yeah. think that there's an important aspect of this that is often overlooked and say that too often when we fail to see an ROI come out of one of these partnerships, a lot of that can be chalked up to either a cultural mismatch yeah. or a failure to even address the cultural aspects. I'm curious what stories you can tell yeah. from some of your partners or, or around culture yeah. and the necessary cultural change. Wow, that you know, I think we could probably uh, we could probably talk a lot longer than what we had time for on that. But I, just a couple quick anecdotes on it. Um, so, culture is one of the biggest barriers to to change, right? And 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 here's why I think uh, it's a problem because uh, so much of of banking and lending and the markets that we serve, uh, somewhere in the in the in the mix, there's a human being that has. Um, part of the responsibility to engage with a customer and they have a relationship. Maybe there's a relationship manager, a private banker, a, a loan officer, whatever it might be. Right. So you always have the human element uh, in mm -hmm. the middle somewhere and you have to use the kind of bring the technology uh, to, to enable that, that human to, to take care of the customer or do what you want them to do to change. Right. And so they will always default if, if given the opportunity, kind of people that have been used to doing things a certain way, they'll always default back to the way they've always done it. And also it's much easier to not make any adjustments and not change than it is to actually do something that you're unfamiliar with. So we see that all the time. And so how we address it, uh, number one, I think it's you you have to really be have a very honest conversation with the executives in the organizations and say, you know, kind of here's what we see. Here's your your team today. And and it's you don't necessarily go out and say, you need to go fire. 20 of your people, which sometimes, you know, maybe they should, but we don't necessarily take it quite that far. It's more about, here's how we think we can deliver the most value for you based on how you're set up currently, right? And then if you're willing to realign some things and uh, bring on some key folks in certain positions to drive some of these initiatives, then you can experience kind of X, Y, and Z. Um, where, where we see kind of some easy wins will be usually just uh, looking at some, some basic automation uh, across the organization to where you're not really putting it in the hands of people having to do things, right? You can, if you've got a point person in IT and marketing or the digital, you know, head of digital somewhere, you can put some basic uh, uh, workflow and things like that in place to where you can say, for example, a common one for us is 
we want to be able to take the data you have about your customers and then drive engagement and, and drive action and workflow off of that, right? So a common one might be, I mentioned the credit card uh, example. It also might be, um, hey, if I'm in the lending side of business and interest rates are fluctuating, I can drive automation uh, out to my customer. And in many cases, I can drive automation uh, that is out to the customer on behalf of another human in the bank. So I'm not necessarily having them log into a CRM to make the change. I'm enabling kind of that that workflow. That makes well, sense. And it's personalization that strikes kind of in yeah. two directions, right? It's personalization for the end customer, but it also is a personalization of sorts for your internal staff and the problem you're exactly. solving, right? You're tailoring it to their need. Now, let's pull on personalization for a second because I feel like that is like the buzzword of 2021 yeah. or one of them right now that people are like, oh, the future is personalization. And I don't think it really means what they think it means when they they kind of throw that on. And you're a platform built around personalization. So yeah. you know, poke a hole in like how yeah. the industry gets it wrong. Well, when we talk about it internally, um, it's really about, we, we take it deeper and, and we usually kind of throw out the word personalization and, and it's really about humanization to where, look, uh, in financial services and in, in banking, credit unions, lending, um, you, you've got an actual human that's your customer and they have different things that are happening uh, in their world with their finances and those things happening uh, will dictate the certain needs that they have, okay? So if you can first seek to understand uh, each of your customers based on kind of what they're doing with you and in some cases uh, what they've told you, right? We do some voice of the customer things to where you're taking in what they're communicating back. If you can use those things to then communicate with them, it goes a layer deeper than just personalizing an offer, right? Our industry traditionally has been about, I'm going to personalize an offer to their name, maybe their home address, and that's personalization. It's not uh, in the way that I think it needs to happen in the modern sort of world that we're in. Um, you have to be able to personalize things and have context and then also have a conversation where it's obvious you have some empathy, right? Mm -hmm. And an example of that would be, uh, I'm not going to send out uh, an offer for, you know, a credit card for students to one of my high net worth customers, right? Like that's, that's, an, that's an easy example. But those are the types of things that particularly smaller and mid-sized institutions, they will think of engaging with customers as always pushing product out to the mm -hmm. masses and then just personal, doing a veneer of personalization on those product offers. And then we, we just feel that really misses the mark. Well, it takes a good amount of courage to not push out offers to everyone. I feel like, mm -hmm. you know, it's not just the smaller institutions, but this idea of, I don't want to miss anyone, right? So let me cast such a wide net that I end up missing, you know, everyone because yeah. it doesn't feel personalized, right? Or tailored yeah. to. Yeah. I'm curious, uh, you know, you, you brought up the data uh, piece of this in terms of you know using the data for that deeper insight. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, you know data is so siloed within most of financial services. and I think it's one of the biggest competitive advantages that the fintech startups have, right? is most mm -hmm. are starting with very modern architecture. How yep. have you gone after solving that problem? Is there actually a, a solve for it short of going and building a giant data lake? Um, well, we've done that uh, as, okay. as, one, as one strategy, okay? Um, I think to answer your question is, um, it kind of goes back to my comment on progress. It, it is really about making continuous and incremental progress. There isn't a silver bullet because the, it's not the same for every institution, right? So we, what we will typically do uh, when we work with a customer, we will, number one, hear about the priorities of the business. And those priorities will typically be around, uh, I want to grow. Um, and I would, 
I would ultimately like to in, increase the loyalty of my customers. I'd like to expand what I'm doing with my existing customers. Those, those would usually be somewhere in the top priority wise, right? So then we'll start looking at what um, are the path, uh, what is the path of least resistance to making incremental improvement uh, in those areas, right? And oftentimes, if you're less sophisticated, it will be flat file. Um, in, in more sophisticated, we've got a large credit union we work with that um, has their own data lake and they hit our API with, uh, and we pull, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of data fields in. And so, you know, it, it really depends on where they're at. And what I always like to say is, even if you can get just some basic data points about a customer, there is progress that you can make knowing that every single one of these organizations has holes in the customer journey somewhere, right? Where they can improve a communication flow, they can improve how they're sending out offers, whatever it might be. So it's really understanding, um, you know, first what their landscape looks like and then ultimately where the where the incremental progress can be made. And it scales from sort of, you know, basic flat file data with kind of minimum amount of fields that you need, right? You know, product line, um, email address, home, right? The, some of the basics, all the way up to we actually have customers where we're bringing in much more sophisticated transactional level data. So, so where they can really do some more advanced kind of segmentation of their customer base. So when, when we partner with organizations and I, and I can't really underscore the word partnership enough, right? Cause that's truly what it is. Uh, we look at everything through a framework of data insights and then action, right? And, you can get key learnings, insights from data based on what you have access to, but where the values created is then your ability to put that, those insights, those data, the data and insights into workflow and actually uh, outcomes, right? So I can then enable my frontline people, customer facing teams with the right information. Here's what I should talk to a customer about. I can, uh, I can take action on messaging out to those end consumers on behalf of different people. So it's really data insights and then action and then taking that framework and applying it to, okay, what's available with the passive least resistance and then how do we make progress? Well, Ed, I love that you called out the lack of a silver bullet because when it comes to that insight and action, yeah. you know, like so often run into banks and even, you know, fintech startups looking for the, like, this is the perfect idea or the biggest yeah. insight. Like this is, this is the thing. And they keep searching for that and don't want to take action until they get there. I'm curious if you yeah. have any customer stories you can tell about just like surprisingly simple things they did to start making progress. Oh, yeah. Um, surprisingly simple things. Uh, we had we have a bank right now to where uh, they have uh, it's important for them. They have mortgage, they have commercial, they have consumer, right? And they have this large base of customers. And one of their core theses was, was look, um, we, we feel that retaining the customer for, for us, um, having mortgage applied to those customers is a, is a key thing, okay? So very simple customer journey we set up for them was taking bank level customers, uh, all their bank customers, and then doing some basic uh, data and insights work where we're, we're looking for intent. We've got third-party data uh, providers and partnerships that some of the banks already have, but we've integrated those things. And so they could be looking at their customer base in the bank of when they're showing intent for a loan. And it was a very simple customer journey of then uh, augmenting that. And then we, we've got another one literally where it was, we want to improve the usage on our credit cards from the ones that are declining. And it was literally one customer journey. We had the credit card customers. We were pulling in um, most recent 30-day history. And when, when there was a drop-off, our system took that insight we interpreted that and then just fired out a basic campaign of re-engaging those customers. 
And those two things drove a, a lot of significant value for those organizations in a very quick amount of time. Well, in show, it's a quick time to value then. And do you just keep iterating on it or what happens? Exactly. Next? Yeah, exactly. So here's, here's typically what we'll do. Uh, we'll lay out basic customer journey, and then we'll look at the priorities of the organization, which product lines are most important to make progress on first, and we'll kind of lay out a few of those customer journeys. And then we'll itemize the improvements that, that they should make first. So we'll say, okay, um, by the way, when you onboard a customer, you're failing to, you're failing to even educate them about the other things you can be helpful with, right? They might be marketing at them, but they're not, mm. you know, doing anything educated. So that's kind of one scenario. And, and so we'll go down that path with them and identify um, those kind of quick wins because progress is the key. Uh, and then once you make those initial sort of two to three suggested uh, customer journey wins, and this is, you know, some of them are using the CRM capabilities. Some of them are just simply using our platform for the orchestration of the workflow, right? So once we get that first win or two, then it's like, we'll have the next six months uh, mapped out with them. And then usually that next six months will be, okay, here's the additional data that we should be pulling in. And then understanding, uh, are there roadblocks to getting that data? Um, and you know, what are they? And then start navigating those. But I think the kiss of death for so many organizations with innovation is they fail to make progress and show value in a short enough amount of time. Right. Yeah. And then it just marches on. Well, it's that quest for perfection, right? If I am yeah. looking for maximal value, not time to value, we're solving for the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, what other mistakes have you seen, you know, organizations make, especially like, let's talk about the, what are the mistakes that organizations new to being data-driven and personalization make? And then let's go to the other extreme, talk about what are the mistakes the sophisticated players, you know, tend to sure. get wrong? So just to make sure I got the questions right, the first question is, what do the organizations make about not being data-driven? And... Well, no, no, no. So if I'm trying to be more data-driven oh, and use personalization, if I'm new to doing this, what are kind of like the, you know, beginner mistakes that get made? Yeah. And then let's go to the other sure. and say, hey, you think it, you got it all figured out? These are the kinds of mistakes yeah. oh, we I see. That, that, yeah. Yeah. Give it to me. I got a fun one. So, so the first one, first mistake number one is we can't access our data. Um, our core doesn't let us get our data. Oh my out. God. I've never heard this before. Right. Every, <laughs> like, this is the mistake number one. And, and then you start kind of drilling down and you start asking questions. And it's funny because sometimes it's like, well, our, you're saying this because somebody in IT once told you that you can't get access to data, and it could be just because they, you know, didn't want to do any extra work at getting you a flat file, right? Yeah. <laughs> and setting up and setting up uh, an SFTP transfer or whatever it might be, right? Um, so it's usually they they really buy in to self-imposed limitations mm. uh, out of the gate. I would say that's probably key mistake number one. Um, I literally was on uh, a conversation with a top 20 bank last week, and I think they have this problem in spades. Like they just mm -hmm. kind of, they just see obstacles and, and they can't get beyond like, okay, well maybe there is a incremental piece of progress that we should look at making. And it's like, yep. nope, we can't get it. Our data is too siloed. And you and I both know right? Like you can get your data. Sometimes it's harder than others. And sometimes it's hard to, to have it, um, you know, really synchronized and, and cleansed. Okay. That's another problem, but usually yep. you can get it. And so that's, that's mistake. Number one is they think we can't be data driven because we can't get access to it. And, and then I think they overestimate, um, the amount of effort required, uh, to get to have an impact, right? Yeah, and and they think it is this Herculean thing. And one of my conversations will usually be like, you know, well, well, what if you just improved the quality of your communication with your current customers, right? 
um, yep. as they do business with you. And you you improved sort of the way you deliver information. Maybe you add, um, you know, add text in, right? Maybe those things. So so that's an easy one. Um, at the top end, the ones that um, this is really fun because not uh, it, it it's it's interesting because I talked to so many. Uh, organizations across the spectrum, which is part mm -hmm. of the fun of my job, is I get to talk big, small, medium, sophisticated, unsophisticated. The big guys, um, they will oftentimes convince themselves that they are probably better at certain things than than they are, right? And one of yep. the common things that I see is they are very proud of all of the AI and all of the intelligence and all of the data and analytics stuff they do, right? Yeah. And then you start going down in it and you're saying, you're starting to walk them through it. So, and I, and I apply back to data insights and action to where you can have all the analytics and data and intelligence in the world, but if you're not activating it and you're not mm -hmm. taking action on it in the organization, you're not delivering value to the business lines. Right. And, and so that's that's usually the biggest mistake I see the big guys make is they think because they've invested heavily in analytics and intelligence that there's they're getting value out of it. And then you draw the you know, you draw the disconnect out for them. You paint the picture of where the disconnect is and you're like, OK, well, if you are not taking that information and that intelligence and then putting it into actually where the customer's communication gets, uh, um, you know, impacted, you've changed what your salesperson, what your customer facing team, you're changing what they're doing based on that intelligence, you know, that that's where value is created. Well, and it's so. interesting building on that. So often we hear this emphasis on real time and we raise the bar, right? It has to be APIs, yeah. you know, and real time in the cloud, yeah. you know, always on, always going, but the action side of things isn't yeah. actually acting in real time, right? It's not like you change yeah. mid sentence, the cu customer conversation I'm having based, yeah. you know, on that insight yeah. you know, that's coming out. Yeah. I think there, there are some, and let me, you know, let me be clear. There, there are some, there are some organizations that I think have done some amazing things with, with uh, digital transformation. I think there has been a lot of progress out there, but you know, to your point, I, th I think there are certain uh, certain scenarios where kind of that real time um, web personalization is important. Kind of where where we focus more is, hey, you've got uh, humans in the middle of your process somewhere, and if you can kind of combine the technology and the automation to enable them to have more meaningful interactions, either automated or or prompted more meaningful engagement with the customers, that's usually a, a, a positive outcome, right? And, uh, and that's kind of one of the, one of the lenses we look at. Well, I love how you've really challenged the norm that you don't need the world's, you know, biggest data pool that's perfectly cleansed to start getting, you know, the value. It's the simple things, even if it's starting with a flat file, there really are no excuses for financial institutions of any size to be, Focus yeah. on data and personalization. Yeah, data insights and action, right? That that framework, I, I think every organization, regardless of your sophistication, um, can improve the relationship you have with your customers, can improve that loyalty with customers, and also um, can improve your ability to grow and add new customers if you look at that lens and, um, and starting with wins and, and having a mindset of continuous improvement and sort of that agile mindset that, you know, we in, uh, in tech have... Have become has become a common common practice. It's just not as much in in FinServe. So, Joe, if folks want to learn more about Total Expert and you know get into yeah. this data driven journey, where do you suggest they you know pick up the on ramp into the modernization highway? Yeah, yeah. So, first of all, you know, always happy to have um, strategic conversations with leaders that might be listening. Um, you can reach out to me, Joe at TotalExpert.com. It's my personal email address. Um, and then, of course, our website is is always a, a spot to to start engaging um, with, with our team and learning a little bit more about what we do. Great. Thanks for joining us today, Joe, and dropping some wisdom. Thanks, buddy. Hey, guys. Brett King here. 
I've personally interviewed Paxos on this podcast, and I'm excited about how they're changing the crypto landscape. Whether you're a small fintech or a large financial institution, with Paxos Crypto Brokerage, you can offer your customers crypto buying, selling, transferring, and more, all with Paxos easy to integrate APIs. Paxos takes care of everything in the back end, from licensing, compliance, to custody and exchange. You can start offering crypto to your customers within months. With clients that include PayPal, Venmo, Revolut, Bank of America, Paxos are amongst the most trusted infrastructure providers for crypto and blockchain. I'm excited that more fintechs and banks are starting to offer crypto. The first ETF just announced recently. And Paxos Crypto Brokerage is the easiest way to get to market quickly and safely. To learn more, visit paxos.com slash breaking banks. That's P-A-X-O-S dot com forward slash breaking banks. Have you ever felt frustrated when checking out online or making a payment over the phone? The GoCart team at FIS Impact Labs certainly have, and that's why they created a better payments experience. GoCart recognizes your email and lets you pay quickly anywhere, with no passwords and no long forms. You can pay faster for anything, even things you wouldn't expect like healthcare, professional services and more. GoCard also goes beyond online checkout and allows you to pay easily by email, text, or with QR codes. If you sell products or services online or in-store, find out how you can use GoCard to simplify payments and increase your sales at gocartpay.com slash podcast. That's gocartpay.com slash podcast. GoCart with a C. FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks, and invests. Hi, this is Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. And I want to tell you about the brand new book Richard Petty and I have coming out in November called The Rise of Techno-Socialism. This new book examines the philosophy of humanity as a species and how the 21st century is going to be the most disruptive, contentious period humanity has ever lived through. During the pandemic alone, we saw the wealth of the world's billionaires surpass $10 trillion for the first time. The richest 1% of Americans today hold more wealth than the bottom 90% and often don't pay taxes. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic in 2020, but in reality, artificial intelligence could disrupt even more jobs, up to 80% of jobs today. The new industries we're creating will ironically face labour shortages because we simply aren't training our students with the right skills today. In the first 20 years of the 21st century, we saw protests double from the 20th century averages, while attendance at these protests climbed over a thousand percent. At the heart of this is economic uncertainty about our future. And this is being amplified by the pandemics. It will be amplified by AI and automation, climate change, and of course, inequality. So how will the next 30 years play out? AI has the potential to disrupt, but also to reframe government, making big government small. Universal healthcare, free education, universal basic income, and massive mobilization of resources to mitigate climate change will all be part of the response needed to these seismic changes. The realization that humanity needs to work together may be the biggest lesson of all. In techno-socialism, we examined four possible futures, and three of those possible futures result in a chaotic and divisive world with rolling crises. But one possible future, what we call techno-socialism, makes possible an inclusive, planned and emerging society where broad prosperity is possible. The book is out for global release in November. Feel free to check out www.riseoftechnosocialism.com for more information on the book and where you can get your copy. I'd be very grateful for your support and consideration of this new book, The Rise of Technosocialism. Hi, John. Thanks so much for sitting down with me today. I appreciate it. It is a pleasure. 
So, John, you are speaking today at the MX Summit later this afternoon, and I wanted to ask you something in your presentation that really sticks out to me is this chart that you use that delineates all of the banking failures um, throughout history, and you use that to kind of visually break up the four eras of banking as you see them. So can you tell me a little bit about that visual and, and how you came around to using that in this presentation? So one of the, the things right now that people are talking a lot about in the banking industry, and this actually isn't unique to right now. This is the conversation that has gone on kind of reoccurring times kind of throughout the last hundred years is that banking is in this period of intense disruption and that the banking that we know or we used to know is no longer going to be kind of the banking of the future. And so you, it's really important to test theories like that and to test ideas like that because it will dictate how CEOs, executives of these organizations, the decisions that they make and the strategies that they implement to like the direction that they're going to bring their banks in. And so you have to know, like, is this true or is this not true? Is Are we entering this new era of banking that things are actually different? So you do actually have to make these huge investments, totally change kind of the culture and the model of your bank. And so the only way you can really test that is you just you have to go back through time and you have to look and say, like, okay, if this is a new era, what was the last era? What were the characteristics of the last era? What were the, era, what were the characteristics of the, of, of the eras before that? Um, and then you can kind of get a sense, like, okay, is, are these, like, false positives, like, you know, all these things that people are talking about, um, or, or is it actually real? And so this chart, the, the, the chart of bank failures going back to, I think it goes back to 1865, which is right around when... Um, the modern American banking era began because there was a whole bunch of like laws that were passed in the midst of the Civil War um, to help pay for the Civil War, but like that's where all of our banking laws came from. So you go all the way back there, and what you see is that you, you look at these failures, and the failures, you, you this period in the Gilded Age, so that period after the Civil War all the way up to the Great Depression, just like failures all the time, major banking crisis every single decade. When the Great Depression you had, FDR comes in, passes these new laws, has the FDIC, so you have deposit insurance. Uh, the Federal Reserve is the Federal Reserve actually came a little bit before that, but they really started to understand what they were doing in and around the Great Depression, particularly kind of the latter half of the Great Depression. Um, and so that period, you look at that. So that period ends after World War II. Then you have this period of calm where, like, nothing is going on in the bank industry, no failures, no risk-taking, and stuff like that, because all these leaders of these banks just lived through the Great Depression, so they don't want to go through that again. So you have this period of calm. But then you have this – the Yom Kippur War in 1973 kind of changes everything in the banking and the financial services industry because you have this, this very acute inflation – the Federal Reserve comes in, jacks up interest rates to 20%. All these things happen, and then you have they, this causes all these bank failures, and the regulators and the policymakers come in, change the policies, change the laws, all these different things. So that's really the era that we were living in from 1973 until about 2008 was the last era that we were living in. And so then the question is, is where are we now? Are we still a part of that era, or are we part of a new era? Um, and if you look at kind of the data and what's going on in, in, the, in the banking industry. It's, you know, there's all this conversation about technology and all this kind of, all this stuff. But technology is a byproduct of these other trends. And there's two principal trends. The first is that because of the regulatory changes that were made in response to inflation and high interest rates, banks could then go out and buy banks in other, uh, in other, uh, uh, in other states. They could then have branches, all these different things. So you have this huge consolidation boom. So we have now like, you know, what, I think we're at 5,000 banks now. So there's dramatically fewer banks than we used to have. So there's like fewer ways to grow now because there's fewer banks to buy. The other side of that is that if you look at a chart of interest rates, again, going back over 100 years, there was this spike in around the early 1980s, and ever since then, it's been coming down. And so what happens when interest rates come down like that and hit rock bottom, as they did after the financial crisis and then again last year, it makes it much harder for banks to make money because the, the, the rate that they 
effectively sell their money at by making loans is much, much lower. So what you find is that there are fewer ways to grow and it's harder to make money, so you have to be more efficient. And so that leads you in this direction. You think like technology has got to be the solution to these issues. And so the point is that it's easy to go around and like say things like, oh, technology is changing, everything is changing. You have to know why. You have to put that in context and in perspective. And then that is what will allow you to make a responsible decision about what direction you're going to lead an organization in. So understanding the history of where we came from really sets up the era that we're in now and allows you to, to look at this huge boom in technology as something that's not just a passing trend, but something that's the result of actually a lot of history. That's right. Now, the, here's the other thing I would say, though. So if you go back to the 1930s, there was this bank, Union Bank, very famous bank back in the day. Um, I've probably told you this story before, but they come out with this brand new technology for banking, and it's banking by mail, where you can, like, commercial customers can use the U.S. Postal Service to make deposits. By the 1950s, 50% of Union Bank's deposits were made by mail. And so you would think, like, the prognosticators, like, you know, like the, the writers, you know, the journalists, you can, you can just, the analysts, you can just imagine them saying, Though you know the branch is dead, banks as we know it are yeah. dead. Well, the, the just no, like the ATM was supposed to kill branches, right? Just like the ATM was supposed to kill branches. But what you found is that the number of branches in the United States went from six thousand in nineteen in the mid nineteen fifties up to over eighty thousand since then. So the point being is that you have all these, and then when the phone came out, they're like. You know, traditional banking is gone because the phone's going to take, you know, the computers come out and the internet come out. So over, you have this narrative over and over and over again, the ATM, like you said. And like, so if you went all in on ATMs, you, you know what I mean? If you went all in on phone banking, like, you know, if you like followed those false positives, I mean, it would have been a huge mistake. Yeah. So. But those things gave banks the ability to run a lot more efficiently, which actually helped to grow their network instead of taking away bankers' jobs like yeah. most people are afraid of. It's just a part of it's just another vertical in their distribution yeah. model. It, that, that's what it is. And banking is banking is still banking. But there's just another vertical in the distribution model. Yeah. You study a lot of history. All of your bios say that you're a voracious reader. <laughs> um, and a lot of times, I think that we talk about biographies that you're reading. Uh, you seem to be really attuned to looking at the leaders behind institutions, particularly banks. Um, and that's a little bit unique. A lot, of, a lot of financial writers focus on metrics and you know, numbers that we're all really familiar with. But you kind of like to peek behind that. So can you tell me a little bit about why you think that's important to do and look at the person instead of just the numbers? So let me put it this way. So um, I know the numbers. The numbers are all out there. You can get all the numbers. When you go and you talk to these people, you shouldn't waste your time or their time asking about the numbers because those are all in the proxy statements for their 10Ks or 10Qs. Or you can get it at, if it's a private bank, you can get all that at the FDIC. So you don't want to waste your time doing that. Um, but this, the reason the personal story is so important, wh wh this the reason I think is so important is that so your typical company is leveraged by a factor of two to three, so they borrow two dollars or three dollars to every one dollar capital that they have. Your typical bank is leveraged ten to twelve times, so ten they borrow twelve dollars for every one dollar in capital that they have. Now, that is an incredibly lucrative business model if done right. I mean, you can compound at an incredibly fast rate. So um, let me just put that in perspective. Like all you have to do as a bank because of the leverage is you just have to earn really just quite average returns, a 12% return on equity, and you double your investors' money every six years. That is an incredibly fast way to compound. I mean, that's a very fast compounding. So that's the benefit of leverage. But the detriment of leverage is that there's no room for error. When, when Washington Mutual failed in 2008, when it was seized by the FDIC in 2008, its non-performing asset ratio was only like 3.6%. So if that, you, the way you can think about that is that it basically got a 96.3% or 96, 3.6, so 96.4% on its test, and it still failed. And so you have to say, okay, 
the decision making in these organizations has got to be so accurate and so good. And so then you have to say, where does good decision making come from? And then you have to dig into like, who are these people? What is the context through which they're making decisions? Where do they come from? What do their parents do? Who are the people? Who are the influences? What do their parents do? What do their parents do? Who are the influences that they had along the way? Like all of those things. That is, if you really want to understand how to build an, like an exceptional bank, you have to dig into those personal elements. Let me let me give you an example, a very specific example about what your parents did and, and why this matters. So, so you know that I'm really close with the folks um, at M&T Bank. So M&T Bank in 1980, <clears throat> a guy by the name of Robert Wilmers, his dad died. His dad was this CEO. He was the president of this um, international, this multinational conglomerate that invested in principally electrical companies and transportation companies all over the world. And then they were just it was basically like a holding company, very similar to actually what, what, what banks do when they like go out and buy all of these other banks. So he was this really successful guy. Well, he passed away in 1980. Well, Robert Wilmers was responsible, basically responsible for investing the family's money, the inheritance. Okay. So he goes in and buys with a, a, a few other compatriots, go in and buy about 20%, 23% of M&T Bank which was just a small bank at the time. But then he grew it into this, one of the largest regional banks in the country. In fact, they just did, they're, they're in the middle of a really big deal right now. And I, it's, I mean, it's gonna be an over $200 billion bank. It's a huge bank. But the reason that Robert Wilmers was so good is because every single bank that he bought, all those deals he did were excellent deals. And every crisis in the industry, 1987 when the stock market crashed, the SNL crisis in the early 1990s, all these crises, the, the financial crisis, all these crises along the way, Robert Wilmers would go and he would just wait. He would watch those crises. And when the crisis struck, he would just go in and buy great bags, literally like pennies on the dollar. And so you say, like, where did he learn that? Well, he, he learned it from this is he, he passed away at the end of 20, 2017. I believe he learned that from his father because that's exactly what his father did. Okay. And so that's why that kind of stuff matters. And so, and just a, 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 kind of a, a tail end of that is that the new CEO of that bank, he's one of only four black CEOs of a Fortune 500 company. Renee Jones. Renee Jones. And so, like, you, you have to wonder, like, how did this guy, like, break through that barrier? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so then you have to, so then you got to dig into his parents and, like, and his growing up. And so, like, it just, it really helps you understand. It fills out all of that, that picture for you to understand, like, kind of the components of decision making. So leverage is beneficial, but also really difficult to wield correctly. Banks can't afford to move fast and break things. So you have to know a lot about the people that are running those institutions to be able to analyze how they're going to approach challenges as they arise. Yeah. Yeah. And you and I have talked about this before, but like I have a very set kind of sequence of questions I go through when I talk. I for whatever reason, I have no idea why they talk to me, but it's, it's amazing. I get to talk to these amazing people and you go through this very like I go through a kind of a set sequence of questions and they're questions that these guys never get asked. Mm-hmm. And you think like, why are other folks missing this element? And I think it's because it's 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 more subjective it's harder to nail down you know what i mean yeah. you really it's you know it's, it's just harder than looking at a proxy statement and saying like well or a 10q or a 10k and just looking at the numbers because they're just so black and white so. so you're a senior banking specialist at the motley fool and you're saying you use this kind of background information the personal lives of the leaders of these banks to actually help you analyze an institution Seventeen thousand banks have failed since the civil war okay so like why do they fail? They fail because of bad decisions. Like, mm. if you want to understand the industry, you've got to understand the decision making. You know what I mean? Or else, like, you can get your, my family. I come from a family that we've been investors in banks for many generations. And so, like, you, you, you just, you have to understand. Let me give you another anecdote. I, I don't think I've ever actually shared this story, but so we've been, we were in, my family was an investor in a bank in Colorado. They went in and bought a charter. We were, we were one of the large investor groups that went in and, and bought the charter. And my parents uh, were sitting down with the CEO one day having lunch. And he shared that he thought the, 
planet Earth was 2,000 years old. Well, that bank eventually failed. And so you say, like, <laughs> like the decision-making that would lead someone to think that the planet Earth is only 2,000 years old, maybe maybe there's, maybe there's those aren't coincidence. Yeah, maybe get to know that guy a little <laughs> you know bit better I mean? before, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that's really interesting. When you look at it that way, leadership and those personal qualities, that can apply to any industry. And I know that you're really passionate about talking to folks from other industries. I think you're working with like a famous chef right now. You're collaborating with a, a great photographer. So tell me a little bit about those other kind of forays that you have outside of banking and, and how they help you bring information back to bank leaders. So like if you want to advance kind of the, the frontier of anything, you, you can't do it within that thing. You have to like either have your own brilliant ideas, which I mean, like those are hard to come by, at least in my experience, um, or you have to triangulate from elsewhere. And so what you do is you, you, you look from other places and you try to triangulate. So like this chef, I'm working with a photographer on this big piece on this famous chef in New York. So you say like, how is it? I mean, every single dish that a kitchen has to put out at these top restaurants has got to be exceptional. Every single one, every single dish has got to be exceptional. And you have, you know, these, some of these kitchens have like 20, 30, 40 people in it. And then you have your, your waiters and your waitresses. And so you have all of these moving pieces and you say like, how do they like just consistently produce excellent results? And like, what, it doesn't matter if you're cooking. It doesn't matter if you're like cleaning cars. It doesn't matter what it is. Like that thing, if you can isolate that thing, you can apply it in any context and anything. So consistency is the big one from the sh- from the chef. You've got to coordinate all, making sure that it hits the table at just the right moment, peak freshness. Uh, that's that's a lot to coordinate, and so consistency is really key for those folks. And also, like, just how do you be like? What is the difference between this amazing chef and your typical chef. Like, what is that thing, mm-hmm. that it factor, whatever you want to call it? Like, what is that thing? And what you find is that, so I'm now doing this, this Wilmer's Integrity Prize thing where we go out, we research these people doing this amazing stuff in the nonprofit world, and we give them money just kind of like to recognize and reward them. And we've really kind of approached it from the perspective of we're going to take the same analytical approach we took in banking and we're going to take that same analytical approach and apply it in the nonprofit world. And what you find is that the people, the, the top performers in that world, first of all, they're exceptional people. These are exceptional people. These people could, they could do anything they wanted to do, but they're applying their, their, their talents in that regard. But what you find is that the same exact things that lead them to be successful are the same exact things that like your top bankers. Yeah. have and so you see these commonalities and so, but it looking in other areas it gives you a, a broader vocabulary a better sense for like what are those things it increases your confidence in saying like these truly are the things as opposed to just like kind of just like making it up on the go yeah let's talk about the prize a little bit because you, re- you referenced robert willemers again who we spoke about earlier um how did this prize come about i know i think mnt is a part of that and then i'd love to hear a little bit about what some of these nonprofit leaders that you guys are preparing to recognize what what areas and focuses they have yeah so um so bob wilmers passed away at the end of 2017 and uh, he was like a giant in the banking industry, like a true, true giant. I mean, every, anybody who is anybody in the banking industry who really knows it revered Robert Wilmers. I mean, he was just such an exceptional banker, such, such an exceptional person. And um, so friends, family members, colleagues put money into this thing and um, to award a prize every year to people who are doing amazing community service. And the, and the other element of that is that – so. M&T Bank is based in Buffalo, New York, a post-industrial city that's been on the decline since the 1950s. And so literally, if you go to downtown Buffalo, New York, if it wasn't for M&T, there would be nothing there. And so it is so important to Robert Wilmer. It was so important to Robert Wilmers to, like, inject, inject life into this community. And so, like, and that was a big part of his whole his whole model. And so that was, that was kind of the idea behind the whole prize. Um, 
But so we're, so we went out. I mean, the, the, we looked at people all across the country doing a variety of and different we, things. And we, sorry, I don't think we said you're the executive director of the Wilmer's Integrity Prize. Okay. Yeah, I'm the executive director of the Wilmer's Integrity you Prize. You have a board that you're working with to. We have a board, we have applicants. selection committee, we have amazing people involved with it, we have a Pulitzer Prize winner, we have a very famous musician involved. I mean, there's an incredible group of people that are, that are involved in this thing. Um, and so we did this, we studied, we just did a, like, kind of just cast our net across the whole United States. And we looked at the biggest metropolitan areas and we said, who is doing the most, the coolest, most innovative things in the nonprofit world in these different cities? And we reached out to them and said, we'd love for you to apply. They all applied. And then we kind of went through the process of kind of voting in different stages and, and picking winners, which we're actually going to announce, um, in here in a few days. But so one of, I mean, the, the things that these people are doing are amazing. There's a there's a woman. She, she's like in her 20s. In college, she comes up with this idea to create coats for homeless people. She comes from this very difficult background. Uh, her parents were in and out of homeless shelters and stuff like that. So she comes up with this idea. She was a design student. She comes up with this idea to make coats that double as sleeping bags. Wow. And she like created these partnerships with like Carhartt. And, all these wow. like, in like Patagonia and all these amazing like apparel companies that give her high quality products, but it's not just that. Then she was like, okay, the coat is just like it's just a band aid, right? Let's hire people out of homeless shelters to make the coats, to sew the coats. So she's hired a, right around a hundred people out of homeless shelters. That's within about within three to four weeks of getting a job at her organization, it's called the, the Empowerment Plan, um, they move out of the homeless shelter, and not a single one of them has moved back. Wow, three to four weeks. Three to four weeks. They move out of the homeless shelter, not a single one has moved back, and many of them have gone on to do other things. So it's like she's like, I mean, you just think about like, wow, that's so powerful because these people have kids. So I mean, she's influencing hundreds of hundreds of people, changing their lives. Another guy... Um, another girl that we had, one of our finalists this year, her father has been in and out of prison her whole life. And when she was applying for college scholarships, she realized that there were no college scholarships for kids of incarcerated parents. So she just started her own thing. Hmm. So she provides scholarships to these kids of incarcerated parents. And so you have another guy who like takes all these computers from these large corporations that would just throw them away. Brings them in, fixes them, thousands of these things, thousands and thousands of these computers. Brings them in, fixes them, and then gives them for free to low-income households. And not only that, he then goes and develops a partnership with, I think, I don't know, T-Mobile or Verizon or which one, which one it is. But this company, I think it's T-Mobile, also gives them free service, free internet service. Wow. All these, so these are at-risk Low-income households with kids who didn't have internet and didn't have computers, and this guy, like literally thousands of these things. I mean, it's just remarkable what these. And he comes up with this idea in his twenties. I mean, it's just remarkable what these people are doing. And these are all incredibly innovative people. I think that's something. I, I come from the, a nonprofit background. I worked for a, a nonprofit that helped low-income artists. And when you're a nonprofit, you have to be so scrappy, you have to be so efficient, and you have to be really innovative. You have to be able to take a problem and look at it from all the different angles to find a solution to that, um, which I think, you know, to bring this all back around to banking and take it home, what you're saying about this era that banks are in now where, you know, margins are getting tighter, things are getting more difficult, but we have this amazing tool in technology that really has unlimited potential. Um, maybe we can innovate our way out of some of these tight spots like your nonprofits have. Yeah, well, I mean, we're not like riding around in, in horse and buggies anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's, that's the thing. Let me just kind of put a bow on this to kind of wrap it into the banking thing. Every, we, had, we picked five finalists for the prize this year, and then we're announcing two winners in a few days here. Every single one of those finalists just by coincidence, or I don't know why, but every single one of them came from a broken home, a challenging background, parents with substance abuse issues, um, in and out of homeless shelters, every single one of them. And so then you think, like, well, what does that mean? You know, like, what does that mean? Like, 
you know, necessity is the mother of all invention. I don't know. Like, what does that mean? And like, when you look at a guy like Renee Jones, who's Bob Wilmers' successor at M&T Bank, Renee came from a totally different background too. His parents were he had a mixed race family back in the day when like that wasn't really in. Um, and so like you just you, you once you dig in and you find these things and you think like it's really like it's hard it's hard, horrible to say but it's really tragedy is the source of so much creativity and that's one of the things you and, and teaches you about leadership and empathy and all these words that people throw around all the time but there's not a lot of substance behind that's where you find the substance behind those words so. That's great. Awesome. Well, John Maxfield, can't wait to hear you speak this afternoon. Thank you so much for coming on and hope to talk to you again soon. And good luck with the prize. We can't wait to see who wins. Thank you. Appreciate it. Awesome. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.